Next, this month's special series, Focus on Heart Health. Throughout the month of February, ReachMD talks with experts about new medications, technologies, and treatment guidelines in cardiac care. We've gone from CPK to troponin to troponin I and T. Do you know how sensitive or specific that expensive workup you're sending out really is? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment focusing on heart health. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Joe Lex, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia. Dr. Lex was named Outstanding Educator of the Year by ASAP, the American College of Emergency Physicians, and the award actually changed names to be renamed after him. He has been teaching, writing, and talking about his passion, emergency medicine, for many years. He's here today to educate us about what we don't know and about what we have probably forgot about the appropriate use of cardiac markers, which is an ever-changing art and science in the emergency department. Welcome, Dr. Lex. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. And thank you for asking me to talk about something that I really do have a passion about, the use and misuse of laboratory studies in the emergency department. What misconceptions are there about the emergency uses of cardiac markers? I think the big thing that we have to get across to people is the only use for cardiac markers is to determine whether there is infarction. What we have right now, the troponins, the CKMB, even the myoglobin will only turn positive if there's myocardial damage. We tend to think that somehow these are going to help us figure out who has unstable angina, and you have to take that off the table right away. None of these markers that we are using commonly now are going to tell us who has unstable angina. If you think that's what you're dealing with, don't expect these markers to get you in or out of trouble or help you make some clinical decision unless they're positive. We all trained knowing about CPK and LDH, and we're all familiar, at least with troponin and troponin I. What else do we need to know about the troponins that maybe we don't know? Troponin was originally touted as the answer to our problems. It was very specific for myocardial damage, and that's what was pushed early. What's happened since then is people are discovering a lot of other things will cause a troponin to go positive, and I'm not sure that word has gotten out there. I have heard anecdotes of people, for instance, in the intensive care unit who show a positive troponin and are suddenly started on heparin with the assumption they're having a non-STEMI MI. Yet, if you look at all players in the intensive care setting, about 40% of them are going to have a positive troponin, which probably has nothing to do with damage to their heart. So what's the reason for that, the positive troponin in the ICU? Because there are other organs which will release troponin, and also even when the heart is not having your typical ischemic episode, or I should say infarcting episode, it can't release troponin for other reasons. There are plenty of case series out there of people with cardiac amyloidosis or status post-defibrillation, vasospasm, dilated cardiomyopathies, hypertrophic cardiomyopathies, 
all of these can cause a bump in the troponin. And in the intensive care setting, primary pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary embolism, renal failure, subarachnoid hemorrhage, all of these have been reported to cause a false positive troponin. There's an expression I heard used a lot clinically when there's a bump in troponin and you can't really explain it. Say, well, he's spilling a little, so maybe we should just admit him. Is that valid, that thinking? I think it depends on what your presentation is. I think it would be hard to ignore a positive troponin in somebody in the proper clinical setting. And I would hope that's the only reason people would send a troponin level is in the proper clinical setting if you suspect the patient may be having an infarct. So you can't ignore it, but I don't know that you have to get aggressive in treating it if you don't have anything else to hang your head on. So what's meant by delta cardiac markers? Delta cardiac marker is a concept that Francis Fessmeyer came up with several years ago, or at least he's done most of the research on it. It's the idea that even with, quote, in normal range cardiac biomarkers, if there is a change in the biomarker over a defined period of time, and in the emergency department that's defined usually as three hours, sometimes as six hours, this is significant and requires more aggressive therapy. Or if there's no change in the biomarker in that three-hour or six-hour window, then you can safely say this patient is not having an infarct and can move on to some other diagnosis. But again, you're saying clinically that doesn't mean the person should or shouldn't be admitted. You're just ruling out an acute event, correct? Well, you're ruling out an acute infarct. If you're still suspecting the patient has ischemia, and this is angina, a delta is not going to help you. Delta troponin or delta CKMB will not help you. What else is some of the significance of mildly elevated markers? They may not have any significance if they are mildly elevated, but unfortunately they cannot be ignored. We've set up this baseline of having to answer for any abnormal study, and if it's abnormal, we have to answer for it. Out of the emergency department, what we frequently do is admit the patient and let the inpatient team sort it out. Yeah, and inevitably they don't like us for that or know why we're doing it, but as you said, you can't ignore a slightly positive test. You really can't. By definition, of course, 1 in 20 tests is going to be abnormal. You're saying statistically because of? Statistically because we put this arbitrary p-value of 0.5. Now, with troponin, they've actually tried to tighten that down a little bit. If you look at some of the research on troponin I, they're trying to eliminate false positives by changing the p-value to about 0.01. And that means you hope there would only be a 1 in 100 chance of a false positive. But that's a moving target. Like any upper limit of normal, that's a moving target. If you're just joining the channel, you're listening to a special segment on heart health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Joe Lex from Temple University. We're discussing the use of cardiac markers and their sensitivity. So in kind of simple terms, because we are a radio show and we've got no visuals at our disposal, can you take us through some of the key stages of myocardial damage and ischemia and relate that to what we're seeing with markers? 
Sure, and I appreciate you using the term markers, by the way. I still hear people referring to these as cardiac enzymes. Remember that CPK is really the only enzyme we're talking about. I think this is a holdover from the days when all we had was LDH and SGOT and CPK. Those truly are enzymes. With troponin's not an enzyme, it is a marker. So thank you for using the correct terminology. What happens, there's a whole cascade that occurs before we reach myocardial necrosis and dysfunction. And there are markers being studied at each stage of the way. The first thing that happens is plaque destabilization. Some of the markers that are being looked at for that include matrix metalloproteinase 9, myeloperoxidase. After destabilization comes plaque rupture. Is any of that proven or is any of that measurable in the clinical setting or is that just a research tool? They are research tools so far. A couple of these you may recognize the names of, but I can promise you that careers are being built on researching these right now. And eventually I want to get to the point where I can tell you about one of my fears of what's going to happen as each of these comes on the market. But going from plaque destabilization, we go to plaque rupture. And there you can measure things like placental growth factor, uh, pregnancy-associated plasma protein A, also known as PAPA. Once the plaque ruptures, there is an increase in acute phase reactants like C-reactive protein. After rupture comes ischemia and platelet activation molecules. Ischemia, we have ischemia-modified albumin, which got a lot of press a few years ago, but has kind of fallen off the table. And then there's also unbound free fatty acids, which can be measured. Then we finally get to necrosis after an ischemia, and that's where we are now. So up to here, we don't have any way of measuring, at least not except in a research setting, we don't have any way of measuring the stages you just took us through, correct? Exactly, but there are at least two or three markers being studied at every step of the way. And even before plaque destabilization, I'm sure you've heard about the pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are being studied also, interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor. So what I fear is some of these are going to show weak positivity, and get published, and people are going to jump on a bandwagon, and then we're going to end up with these panels of chest pain biomarkers, which we're going to be sending six or seven tests, in addition to sending the troponin or the CK or the BNP, we'll send an unbound free fatty acid level or a CRP or a a placental growth factor level. And can you imagine the cost and the interpretation of that? Exactly. Not only the cost, but the more tests you send, the more likely you are to get a positive. So that is a huge problem that I foresee happening, which is why this is one of my passions, which is why I want emergency physicians to be aware of this so that they don't get caught flat-footed like we were with BNP, like we were with D-dimer, maybe like some people were with C-reactive protein. How does ASAP, or the American College of Emergency Physicians, recommend the use of markers in the emergency department? And do the cardiologists agree with that? Ah, the second part of the question, I don't have an answer for you. (laughs) But I I will tell you the first part. ASEP has been publishing clinical policies for many years, 
and their most recent clinical policy on this was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. It's called Critical Issues in the Evaluation and Management of Adult Patients with Non-ST Segment Elevation Acute Coronary Syndromes. The lead author on this, by the way, was the same Dr. Fessmeyer, who did all of the work on Delta biomarkers. And this clinical policy talks about myoglobin, CKMB mass, troponin I, and troponin T. And one statement I think is very important that needs to be emphasized. This is a direct quote. It says, no single serum marker used alone has sufficient sensitivity or specificity to reliably identify or exclude acute myocardial infarction within six hours after symptom onset. So that sounds key, within six hours after onset. Yes. No biomarker can either identify or exclude within six hours after symptom onset. So that's a very important part of the clinical policy that people need to be aware of. Medicine is an art as well as a science, and are we losing the use of risk factors and history along with cardiac markers and physical exam in our rush to go ahead with the advancing science? Are we really forgetting what it is we're practicing and why we're there? I think so. One of the reasons I moved from the community to the academic setting a few years ago was because I felt this way. I felt that a lot of people coming out of training programs were unable to make clinical decisions without ordering a lot of tests. And I thought I might be able to make a difference. I'm not sure that I am making a difference, to be honest with you, but I'm still holding on for dear life, trying to convince people that it's still in the history. It's still in the physical. The lab studies don't help you that much. But unfortunately, what I see is people are congratulated far more on knowing how to order an obscure study or how to get all the information out of the computer than they are rewarded for recognizing jugular venous distension or an S3 by actually examining a patient. And I'll say I wholeheartedly agree with you. We have to wrap it up, but I want to give our thanks today to Dr. Joe Lex from Temple University, who's been our guest. We have been discussing the intelligent use of cardiac markers at the bedside. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to a special segment on heart health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. And thank you, as always, for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Heart Health. For a program guide, complete list of shows, and podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com.